We are continuing our study of Elijah. This morning's passage is found in 1 Kings 17. So, wait for it, in your Bible, in your chair Bibles, page 170. Page 170, you don't have to have any knowledge of the Bible, as long as you can know how numbers work. Oh, no. That's not a, that's not a pew Bible. Everyone send me your exact Bible, and I'll then tell you the page in your particular brand. We are looking at Elijah and Elisha. The way that's going to play out is Elijah, then Easter, then Elisha. And what we've noticed, this is the third discussion, is that there's a real reason for Elijah's coming. That in the Bible, unlike, say, superheroes in the Bible, the evil precedes the hero, right? And so we find out in chapter 16 that there's this king named Ahab. And he's taken what was kind of a, an already annoying sin process of worshiping Baal, and he has scaled it. If you are into you know, um, entrepreneurship, how to scale a business, how to make it explode and be reproductive, well, that's what he did. He, brought, he married a woman named Jezebel, whose name is pretty much synonymous with evil, even to this day. And she brought into the kingdom like hundreds of prophets to teach and to carry out the worship of Baal. And so God brings Elijah. If you'll remember our first discussion, 17.1, Elijah shows up and says, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a famine until I pray. And I'm sure Ahab didn't believe it at first, but Elijah goes and hides. And Ahab can't find him for three and a half years. And the first place he hid, which Jonathan Dorse talked about last week, was in the brook Kareth, where God was giving him nourishment through the brook and through uh, ravens. And then it ends, and we're going to pick up where it ends now in verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called out to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread baked, excuse me, a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. 
And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you're the truth and that your word is truth, that you are the living God, and that you bring life. Lord, we are a people who desperately need reviving, um, and we desperately need to hear your word this morning. Amen. I recently came across a study um, where they took participants, the psychologists took 205 adults, and they fitted them with beepers. And these beepers, and college students, beepers are little things that go on your belt, and then they beep. Um, anyway, they, these beepers would actively go off randomly throughout the day. Can you imagine how annoying that would be? But for these people, they've joined this study. They wanted this to happen. And every time the beeper would go off, their job was to stop and write down what sort of desires and thoughts they'd been happening in the 30 minutes prior to that beeper going off. Does that make sense? And what they found, they gathered more than 7,500 samples. So I guess the 205 people did a ton of these little reports. They found that this, that people are filled with desire and, and were fighting desires all day long. Uh, the most common ones were eating, thinking about eating or sleeping or sex or taking a break from hard work, but also longing to be on social media and other forms to be with other people. Very interesting how much of our time is spent wanting something other than what's right before us and what we're doing. And so the reason that came to mind is as I'm thinking through what Elijah is doing, what's happening in Israel, there seems to be a divided heart. Right? Israel seems, you know, historically is a nation that loves Yahweh and says we love God, but here comes in a false god through Baal who promises agricultural flourishing, etc. And there's this divided heart. You know, I, I love God, but when I have needs, when I have hunger, when I have desires, I think of other things. I think many of us do that. We're, I doubt that many of us on that report would say, I've been contemplating the beauty of my heavenly father, right? Most of us are going to write down similarly to those adults, all the things that are pulling us. And that's not that it's wrong. It's that I want us to think about how is Jesus in this passage showing himself to be the one who gives you all you need, right? He chose a widow, from outside of Israel to show his goodness and mercy and that all of her needs were met in God of the Bible, Jesus, the Father, Yahweh. And so we're going to look now at the two points are going to be resources and resurrection. Um, the first way that this widow comes to see God as being all she needs is through the resources, right? We pick up this passage with some really interesting back and forth. First, we notice in verse 8, that the word of the Lord comes to, to Elijah, arise and go to Zarephath. Now, he had been at this brook, Kareth, right? What's interesting, and this is just a little bit of a side note before we jump into this first point, 
is that the brook had already run out. The brook had run out. Presumably the ravens had stopped bringing food. And that kind of coincides with God's command to go. And I just want to note that oftentimes God will be urging us to doing something, but he's also going to kind of goad us into going that direction. Does that make sense? When I was um, a college student, I wanted to go to Kanakuk and be a camp counselor. I thought this would be the greatest thing ever. Yet I was kind of also offered a job to do some youth ministry at my local church. That felt kind of boring. I was torn. I wanted to go have fun. I wanted to do the camp. Well, guess what? I wasn't hired by Kanakuk, so my decision was made for me. I remember really struggling through that decision and wondering what would I do when they tell me that I have a job, and then I get the call, wait, we didn't choose you to be one of our uh, camp counselors. I assure you it's because of my, um, it was my athletic prowess was just overwhelming to them, and so they didn't want, you know, any pros. So there I was, that, that sticks out of my mind, because when I came to be the youth leader as a PCA church, and that set my direction with Chuck Garriott, Mark Davis, later Dan Iverson, and all the ways God shaped my life spiritually from that one moment, I'm not sure I would have made the right decision had they both been handed to me. So that's an initial point about resources. But I want to pick up with this dialogue between Elijah and the, and the widow. Right, so God has told Elijah, there's a widow and she's ready. I've commanded her. I'm not sure how that went. I'm not sure how she got the information. But by faith, Elijah goes to the city and he sees a widow. We're not told how he knows it's her. But what we're told is he says to her, go and bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And she does. So, so far, so good. But then he says, oh, and by the way, I would like some bread too. And that kind of stops her in her tracks, right? I've had enough. You know, I, I'm following you. I know what God told me to do, but let me tell you how, let me just kind of tell you, Elijah, what's going on. And what was going on was that she was gathering these sticks to go make a fire so that she could then bake her last loaf of bread with the little bit of flour and the little bit of oil she had so that she and her son could have their last meal and then die. Right? That's the state she was in when Elijah finds her. And it's interesting that what Elijah says to her, what I would expect and what I would have done had I been in charge of writing that paragraph would have been, don't fear. Let's all eat together and, and the resources will never run out. Right? That, that makes sense. Have faith. But that's not what he does. He says to her, he says in verse 13, do not fear, go and do as I have said. First, make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. I want you to just imagine what he's saying to her. She's going to go pour what feels like the rest of her jug and the rest of her flour and watch it baking. And here's this stranger somewhere on her property, I presume. And she's thinking the whole time, this is, this is crazy, right? Do you feel the passage of time? Do you feel the weightiness of faith? And, and just... Finally, the bread's finished, and she has to take it out, and she hands it to him, and her stomach's growling, and who knows if her son's watching and what's going on there, and Elijah begins to eat this bread. Uh, right? Don't you feel the agitation? But then she turns excitedly to the two things, the jug and where the flower sits, and it's there. The resources are provided. It feels a little bit like Abraham and Isaac, like, I'm going to go through this thing, 
trusting that on the other side, God will be faithful. God will bring to me the resources that I need. I think sometimes in our modern era, we have lost sight of God's provision. This is one of the most dangerous illustrations I've ever brought up because it's about the coronavirus. I just envision you all going, and then the sermon's over and you're all debating. I just want to make two points about the coronavirus as it applies to this sermon. It's revealed, I think, two of our idols. First of all, I think it's a real thing, and I think we need to wash our hands, and we'll talk about that later. But it's revealed, here are the two idols. Number one, uh, all of, most of us have watched the talking heads. Most of us have found the channel's personal expert. Most of us have gone onto the websites. Most of us have done our thing. And then we come away, and we're as confused as ever. And, and what I have heard one uh, newscaster say that just, I think, gets to the heart of it is this. We hate that we can't know. We are really, really bad at being in a moment of just uncertainty. With all the science, the, that's the plausibility structure of our world, science and, and knowledge and information, I should be able to read and become an expert and know the answer. And we don't. One example, just, and this is maybe too close to home, but the Stillwater paper had an article that said, don't worry, northern Oklahoma, I'm paraphrasing, northern Oklahomans aren't as at risk as the big cities. Okay, yay, we're in Stillwater. And I'm sitting down with some folks that work at the university, and they said, no, no, we've been told we'll be one of the first places. All these people are coming from all over the world to us. Which is it? Have I made you all nervous enough? Okay, so the the omniscience we long for, the certainty we long for, is not ours to have. God is the only one that has all knowledge. But secondly, and here's the other kind of slightly humorous, maybe scary thing, are the things being posted, Angie Larison, on Facebook uh, of empty shelves. What do you do? When you go to Walmart and your one item's missing, what's going on in the world, right? Any, with the coronavirus, it's like just time to take whatever is like, I just need all the stuff. And, and there's this fear of the resources being gone. It's like for the first moment in our day or maybe our week or our life, we realize Walmart is not magical. It doesn't like grow inside the shelving or grow in the back room. Like there's actual process here. And so the two idols that are being exposed are, are, are really what's being exposed in Israel. That, that Baal is not able to do all the things they think he can do. In fact, he's not even real at all. And God is saying, I'm going to teach you through resources to rely on him. And as we've been reading, as I've mentioned, through the Bible uh, as a class, and when you start reading through Genesis and Exodus and some of these early places in the Bible, you see that God, as he is rescuing his people, establishing rhythms, So the Passover, even before he's done the Passover, he's telling them how to celebrate the Passover. And it's a yearly thing. We're going to do this yearly. And then there's quarterly festivals, right? And then there's weekly Sabbath. And of course, with the manna, there's this daily manna. That, that, remember to the Egyptian, to the Israelites leaving Egypt, they've been quarreling and grumbling and God's providing a food source, but you have to get it freshly every morning, And then, of course, the words of Jesus in the prayer we prayed together, give us this day our daily bread. We need to remember that we're tethered to Jesus, that we are revived by him, that we are connected to him daily. And I would encourage us every day to go back to the throne room of grace 
and remind ourselves freshly through reading his scripture, through meditation, that he is the reason we have today's breath. He is the reason we have today's resources. That's what we're starting with that. That's first point. Um, The Lord is our desire. I think the more we see him as behind the desires, the more we'll recognize that he is where life is found. And then famously, Jesus in John 4 says, I am, or no, in John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. So this idea that we're not just talking about just our sustenance, just our resources, but actually our spiritual bread, our spiritual life. But point number two is that comes through resurrection. So this whole first part was going beautifully. Uh, This widow and her son were provided for. And then we come to to the uh, verse 17 of chapter 17. And we find that the son has become sick and he even dies. And it's, a fa- it's fascinating how just we're going to really pick apart what they say, but I want to draw our attention again to Baal. Jonathan talked about this last week, but the god Baal was the one that brought all the, all, all the harvest. Like every year he died, but then every year he resurrected. Yay! And when he resurrected, it happened to somehow coincide perfectly with vegetation and the rivers flowing again and the, and the fruit of the, of, of the culture so they could eat, or of agriculture. But this time, they're three years in, that God is not resurrecting. Baal is nowhere to be found. They're in a famine. What's going on with our idol? So it really does follow along with these issues of, of their idols that God's exposing. So what is he doing? Uh, in Luke chapter 4, we have, a, we have Jesus sort of telling us what he's doing. In chapter 4, Jesus of Luke is talking at a synagogue, and he's getting people frustrated because they don't know who he is, and he's in his own area, his own town. And finally, he says, I tell you this. In the time of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel, right? Many. And when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and the great famine came, he was sent to be at Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow there. And then in verse 28, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. What is Jesus doing? I'm going to go show those that don't understand God. I'm going to go to the outcasts, the widows, the orphans, and share the gospel. And that made them mad in that setting. Now, there's other reasons why Elijah maybe went to Zarephath, including rutting from Ahab, etc. But he obviously went... Because there was this person there who was a child of God, an elect child who needed to hear the gospel. And he was going to live with her for several years, sojourning with her and showing her the beauties of the gospel. And that's what we find in this separate account. The first account, the feeding daily, was one way that God showed it. But finally through this sickness with his child, her child. Um, listen to what happens. She comes to Elijah and she says, oh man of God, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause death to my son. I, I really, really like what she's saying there. It sounds so harsh, but what she's doing is the, the Bible is giving us a mirror to our own hearts. She's an outsider, but she's been faithful, right? Every day she went to the jug and she did her thing and made the bread. Every day was faithful. And then her son dies. And it strikes her at the core. Maybe, just maybe it was all a trick. 
maybe God wasn't as good as I'd hoped. Maybe God had it out for me. And instead of just thinking those thoughts, she just says it flat out. And when she does the blame, there's two ways you, we all do blame, right? We blame others and we blame ourselves. And we do it very well and very rapidly. And she does both right there. A, is, are you exposing my sin? And B, why are you doing this? And so there you have it, Elijah, the godliest man on planet Earth, not only at that time, but arguably one of the top, so let's just say 20 of all of time, okay? He was whisked away at the end of his life. He never died. When Jesus comes, the question is, are you the Elijah, you know? And he is gonna give her a great theological understanding of what her question is. And how does he do that? He takes her son. Now, all we can assume is this is a younger child because she's able to hold him. Elijah takes the son and goes upstairs. And he's gonna go, Talk to God as a man of God. Let's listen to his words. He's going to correct her poor theology. Oh, Lord, my God, verse 20. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Do you hear him? He's a human. He's aching. He's been there for a long time. He knows that child. He knows this woman. He cannot believe it. He cannot believe that this is God's plan. And he's crying out. And I want to invite you to cry out over the hard places of your life. Those places where you're just tempted to say, you know what, let's just joke about it. Let's ignore it. Let's just, maybe, you know, let's use our theology to say, God, you are sovereign. There's clearly, uh, this is all part of it. And I, I accept it perfectly. It's okay. It is okay to cry out. To cry out as one with hope. And that's certainly what Elijah was. Because notice he doesn't just cry out and then bury the child. What does he do? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now, what does that mean? I, I couldn't find very many commentaries that wanted to even interact with that language. What does this mean that he, he like, I was trying to envision it, and I'd like you to do the same when you read the Bible. He's stretching out, is he hovering? Is he just kind of hovering over this child? What do you, what do you envision? I, I, think, like, I think he laid on the body of a dead child. I think, he, I think he's touching this, this person. And I think the warmth of his skin is on the coldness of that child's skin. And in the scriptures, we find that this posture of being prostrate is very much a posture of submission. And you start to get a picture of what it would look like to have someone that would come that close to you to see you resurrected, to get that close. Most of us would stay away. Maybe we would hover, but Elijah comes very, very close. And he comes back with this living child, and it's a miracle. Are you comfortable with anyone getting that close to you in your deadness? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the one that comes in to our lives and he not only comes close to our skin, right? And of course we know the story of him washing feet, but what we know for sure is that as Christians he has come into our very bodies, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he has come to dwell with us. And through his death, we are resurrected. 
Now, there are two people in this room that we all fit into, I think. One, we might be sitting here this morning and going, am I, you know, am I, would God love me? Well, where, where would my faith be? I want you to be encouraged if you're like the widow. If you're like the widow, I want you to be encouraged that, you know, no matter how far of an outsider I may be, it just might be that God has sent his son to come into my world to show me his love and care. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't relate to the widow at all. I'm more like Elijah. Well, he was just as filled with unbelief as she was initially. And yet they both experienced this child's resurrection, that God resurrected the child. And listen to her response. See, your son lives. And the woman says to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Man of God feels in our culture to mean you go to Bible studies and you carry a Bible. Like, you know, like you're a man of God. And I'm not trying to belittle that. Here, I think what she's saying is you are one sent from God. Like you are one that acts as a mediator to God. I now know that you, Elijah, are not just someone that oversaw this miracle, which was amazing of daily bread, etc., but that God has used you to come into my life and he says, and that your Lord, the words of your Lord are, the, are truth. And that word for truth we find in two places in scripture. One is in Exodus 34, where God is passed in front of Moses and he, he, he introduces himself. I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what she is saying after receiving the son and that has been resurrected is I now know your God is faithful and loving and truth. And then Jesus himself in John 14 defines himself as I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Are we running to Jesus for all of our desires? Are we coming to him not only for daily desires, but for resurrection in our daily life? I just want to close by pointing us to a book I've been reading, I'm just starting, called J-Curve. It's really neat looking. It's orange, and it says J-Curve. And it's by Paul Miller. His father, uh, Jack Miller, was something, someone of you know, I talk about him from time to time. Paul Miller has written quite a few books, like The Praying Life and Seeing Jesus. Um, But this book, what he's saying is this. A lot of us get, get, a lot of Reformed people get caught up in justification by faith which is such a profound and amazing doctrine that we need to know and understand. The idea that, that there's nothing you can do and that God credits you with the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And that from that point on, you are completely loved and, and, and that is what you are. And that, of course, leads and is involved in your adoption and your union. But the question is sanctification. And his point is this. The way sanctification works is like a J-curve. Now, I've talked about the U-theory of the U-diagram before. It's very similar. But the J-curve is Jesus first has to die to be resurrected. That's the model. And that's what we're going to face over and over again. That the way we're going to go up is by going down that, that J. Now, that doesn't mean what a lot of you just heard is great. I've got to have something really bad happen to grow in Christ. I've got great news, no. I've got really bad news. You already have a lot of bad stuff happening. If you just look in your heart for a moment, if you're just really honest, we have so much sin, so much unbelief that 
we can enter the J curve. He gives one example of just the way he had to loving his wife. I shouldn't say this in front of my wife. She hasn't read the book yet. His wife needed him to go out in the middle of like a snow thing to do something as part of her. She kept some animals and he had to die to self. So he gives this kind of cheesy example. But as a husband, I'm like, yeah, like I get it. I would say, I'm not going to go out there. You know, you, you wanted to raise the sheep. There's your Uggs, you know. And so are we, even in the simple places, going, okay, I'm going to die to my desires. I'm going to go into my own heart and see my own sin and run to Jesus and lovingly, not earning my wife's favor or earning the favor of someone, but lovingly come through that J-curve resurrected on the other side going, I know it's true. I know that God is truth. I know that God lives. And I know that the gospel is freeing me from all the chains that are still trying to pull me into the old directions. So I'm inviting us uh, this week, this semester, to continue to study Elijah, but to think of the J-curve and the fact that the way up and the growth you want often comes through that repentance and that experience of pain that's already there. Others are going through actual major problems, major health concerns, major financial concerns, major relationship concerns. And in those places, what, what this scripture promises you is that Jesus, as your mediator, is coming close to you. He's wrapping you up. And he will walk you through this process if you trust him. And it may not feel good, and it may not turn out exactly like you want, but we can trust that we will come through it with the resurrection. Let us pray. Jesus, we praise you that you entered suffering for us. Where Elijah lays on this child and lays down, you go to the cross. And when you went to the cross, it was painful. Forgive us for trying to act like it didn't hurt. Forgive us for trying to act like it was just your duty. Lord, help us to believe that for your joy that was set before you, us, You went to a cross that was the most pain we could even imagine, especially with your father turning his face from you. And you did that because of your love. So, Lord, I pray for my friends here and myself that we would all believe freshly that you love us. And, Lord, you're not waiting for us to behave or do better things to then love us, but you went to the cross first, that we would enter that with you dying to all the things that drag us away from you, the idols we set, the false beliefs, the selfish ambitions, the vanity, whatever it is that's clogging that, Lord, teach us to expose it to you that we may go back freshly to the cross and come up the other side resurrected in our daily lives, longing for the true resurrection that comes at the end of time for your glory. Amen.